Greetings and welcome to the Trauma and Social Work Podcast. Thank you for listening to Season 2. You are listening to Tanya Octave, Licensed Clinical Social Worker. My goal is to provide education, resources, suggested practices, and understand more about the aspects of trauma and social work. This podcast is for you because we are all impacted by trauma. I am your host. Go grab your notepad, pen, or pencil, a warm cup of tea, and let's get down to business. This season is to focus on the voices of others impacted by trauma. Although I may speak on behalf of others with their permission, this is still their voice. You will hear from social workers, parents, families, children, teenagers, clinicians, and just so much more. You will hear from all people, regardless of their heritage, ethnic background, gender or sexuality, identification, social economic status, and much more. Let's take a deep, profound listening to all voices. podcast is not intended for medical, psychological, mental health, or legal advice. You should seek out a professional for individual and specific questions regarding your overall wellness. If you are experiencing a mental health crisis, call 911 or go to the nearest emergency room. Welcome, Katana. (laughs) Hello, can you hear me? Yes. So I'm so excited. (laughs) Today we have Katana. She has worked for the Child Welfare Department and the Adult Protective Services um, Agency across California. She is dedicated to serving her community. Her expertise is child welfare, but also in elderly abuse. Katana services our vulnerable groups. And she has seen and been subjected to many things in this work. She knows what it's like to work firsthand within a system that overworks you, underpays you, and continues to demonstrate social injustice in many ways. As a social worker, her dedication to the community is done in an amazing way. And yet, she has not been given the opportunity to move up in her department. In part, this is due because of institutional racism. And the other part is because she speaks up. She's an advocate for social justice. This does not stop Kotana and her mission. She wakes up every morning with a smile on her face, goes into work, and serves. This is just who she is at the end of the day. Potana has been in many homes, engaged and talked with many families, and adapts to all cultures. This makes her vulnerable and subject to acts of racism, and not just by clients in the community, but also by coworkers and supervisors. Now, this is not overt all the but it happens. Imagine if you provide a service to others and they could talk to you and treat you in any way, especially because of the color of your skin. Imagine you had little connection and supports from coworkers. There's a sort of trauma that will develop. Quatana has a racialized experience as a social worker, and yet she still maintains being sensitive. 
Quatana is African-American, and although she has no children, she knows what it's like to care for elderly family members. This is an attestment to her patience. I thought it would be significant to hear her voice about her racialized experiences with trauma. Because when we think about social workers, there is little attention and understanding given to their cultural experience. So welcome and welcome. I want to first thank you for your time and your commitment to doing this podcast for me. I hope that your message reaches those who need to hear it. And I hope that your voice continues to grow and that you share your experience and hope for a real change. Thank you for having me. Thank you. So when you think about your racialized experience as a social worker, what comes to mind? Well, I my experience working with adults comes to mind more so than when I worked with children. Working with adults, especially older adults, um, the area that I've worked in is not very diverse. And so you know, older people, they kind of, people over a certain age in general, they grew up during a time where a certain level of prejudice was acceptable. So people will say certain things to me. I've, I've experienced pretty much the full gamut of really like small comments that people, where people didn't necessarily mean to be hurtful. So what they would call like now, I guess, microaggressions, but I've experienced that all the way to people being openly hostile towards me. So are you kind of suggesting that because of the population that you service, them being older and them growing up during a different time, that they are maybe in some way going to also mimic some of that behavior in in how they treat you, talk to you, the words that they use? Oh yes, it. I almost every time I have that I pull up into a house, I kind of have to take a deep breath and just be ready for whatever it is that I'm going to hear from my clients. Many times I have visits and it goes perfectly fine, and it doesn't. It's not an issue at all. But me being one of the few black people in my program. I will be subject to certain behaviors and certain comments that some of my coworkers wouldn't. I mean, I also work with other people of color also, but, um, and they have their own experiences as well. But I think that it's a little bit different being a black woman, because one thing that permeates all cultures is anti-blackness in some form. Mm. So I have to, I kind of have to be ready for whatever it is that's, that someone's going to say. And I try to, I have to try to brace myself and be mindful that is possible every time I go into someone's home. And, and, and I think this is the point that I'm trying to explore is you said you take a deep breath before even getting out of the car to help prepare you. That's not a common experience among other people. So you have to be mindful just color of your skin and being African-American um, that there's a certain level of awareness. Um, I may even argue a little bit of trauma that goes on before even entering a home. Right. You do. We get a little bit of PTSD before we even um, go in just because it's it's whatever could happen, the comments or just people's behavior it's more jarring when it's always jarring, but it's more so when you, when you're not prepared for it at all. 
when you forget that it's a possibility. And so I have to be aware of that at all times. So could you describe how you experience discrimination and injustice when working with clients and how you can just still continue to do this work? Well, like I was just saying, I've kind of experienced the full gamut, like um, the, the small comments where someone maybe didn't mean to be hurtful or didn't realize it. So it'll be called like now, you know, the term they use a lot of times is microaggression. So that all until up until open hostility. So for instance, I had a client who were having a conversation and they all of a sudden, and I wear my natural hair most of the time and they looked at me and then I noticed them looking at my hair and then all of a sudden they stop and go, how do you comb that? And so there's, there's that, Did which that of course, you one of guard? slightly, yeah, okay. I wasn't really, but in the back of my mind, I, I try to be ready for it. I never know in what form it's coming, but you know, it did kind of stop me for a second, but I was fully prepared to address it and then keep going with work. And it, it's gone as far as I've also had um, one. Sometimes it's not it's not the clients. Sometimes it's their surrounding family members. And I've had an experience where I actually went out with another coworker who happened to be white. And we went out to see a client. One of their family members was present. And I had to engage with this family member because they were part of the issue that was reported to us. And they would have also been, they were a big part of the problem, but they also would have been a big part of uh, the solution if we could get this person on board. Right. So Mm -hmm. I had to engage with them and they were openly hostile to me the entire time. But at the, but interestingly enough, their attitude would completely change when engaging with my white coworker, but I had to take the lead because it was my case. So Mm -hmm. I just had to push through and continue on. Um, they refused to make eye contact with me at one point, they turned to face me and close their eyes the whole time while they were talking to me. I'd never seen anything like that before. It was so um, blatant that when we got outside, my coworker goes, what was their problem? And then they said, they, my coworker says, what was their problem with you? And so then I stopped and I said, think about it for a second. And then this look came over my coworker's face and was like, oh my God, you know, because that's it's something right that, exactly, mm-hmm. because that's something that they never have to think about or be aware of. And then of course they had to kind of come to grips with, they just actually viewed a whole racist scenario, right? In their faces. So there's that. And then just as recently as a couple of days ago, a client's family, they would not refuse to even let me in the house. And I had to call the police. I the police showed up. Both officers were white. Um, and I saw the my client's family members completely change personalities as soon as they saw the white officers at the front door. They refused to address me. Um, they kept calling, kept referring to me as this person and pointing their fingers at me. Mm. Then they tried to tell the officers that I was the one who was um, 
that I was more so hostile, the hostile one. They didn't use that word, but that was just the picture that they tried to paint as if I came to their home um, completely unengaging and rude, which anyone who knows me knows that that's not my style at all. And then, um, I mean, they turned on the tears for the <laughs> officers. It was, it was yeah. a whole, it was a whole show. Um, and I had to just deal with being disrespected from start to finish. And I just had to keep the goal in mind that I was there to check on my client. I took a step back. Um, the officers were very, um, very respectful of me, very nice, very um, understanding. And then I just kind of had to step back and let the officer take the lead. And it, it didn't feel good to let the officer have to do my job kind of, but since the environment was already so hostile and these people had already decided that I was, I was the problem. It, I couldn't have, I had to yield basically just to get um, the, the information that I needed, which was basically to check on my client's welfare and safety. And then what the specific information I needed from there. You know, what I think about you, as you describe some of these experience, you know, with clients and people in the community, what support do you get from coworkers and supervisors about some of these racialized experiences? And then maybe what would make you feel even more supported? Well, honestly, there isn't much support in place from supervisors and managers in terms of racialized experiences. The area that I work in, like I said earlier, is not very diverse. Um, it's definitely not diverse when it comes to Black people. There aren't many that live in the area. There aren't many that work um, for the agency that I work for. So there's really not a whole lot. I feel like the people that are in higher positions sort of ignore the issue and ignore that it is an issue the, because they don't have to think about it. Most of them don't have to think about it. The, That's true. The supervisors, there are, there, it's very few, and, and, and this is just my agency specifically, very few of them are people of color and none of them are, none of them at all or are black, not the direct supervising staff, right? So that makes it a little bit more uncomfortable for me to bring up race because now I never knew the term for it before, but now that people are discussing it more. I think white fragility is a big term is a big thing yeah. to describe it because I think black people sometimes are hesitant to bring up race, especially in the workplace because it makes white people uncomfortable and it, you don't want to be seen as, Oh, you're overly sensitive. Oh, you make everything about race or, and I'm not saying that that's how I've been made to feel directly in my job. I'm just saying that this is what I think most black people carry around in the workplace every day. So as far as support from the higher ups, my direct supervisor for some time is a person of color, but they, um, they're not, like I said, they're not a black person. None of the direct supervisors are black. Now I do get some support from my coworkers. I feel like that's the most support that we have when we kind of commiserate with one another about our experiences. I have, um, coworkers that are Latino. I have coworkers that are Asian. It seems to be some of my Asian coworkers have 
heard like outwardly hostile comments, um, racial slurs, that kind of a thing um, that have been said to them by clients and family members of clients. And so we kind of, we talk about that and we can relate to one another in that sense. But that's usually, that's usually it. I don't, I think most of us are reluctant to bring it up. I definitely am, especially as one of very few Black people where I work with no supervisors that are um, Black and that or any that look like me. And, and I think that's a key point that you're talking about it because then it also makes the population that's being served. There are people of color in your service area and they're mm-hmm. Asian and African American and yet... There are people managing these cases who are not culturally, uh, who don't culturally look like them, I guess I'll say. Um, so maybe one of the solutions is to not make people, I guess, necessarily more culturally competent, but to start hiring people who are just as qualified or not at, or even more qualified into some of these higher up management positions. I, I agree. I completely agree that um, because... I, the times that I have had a Black family, because see, I've I've also worked in another area in a different scope of social work, working with another vulnerable population, but it was a very moneyed area. It wasn't, I wasn't working with seniors at the time, but I was was still working with families. And um, I also had to brace myself every time I went into a home because I was one of the youngest people on my team. I was the only Black person on my team. And, you know, those two factors together, people will automatically assume you don't know what you're talking about. Mm -hmm. And people will, and then of course it also opens the door to um, having another type of racist experience or prejudicial experience. So um, I didn't, it wasn't very diverse. It was a moneyed area. I, the few, I had black families a few times working in that agency, but I I remember when they opened the door and they saw me, you know, someone who looked like them, someone who could identify with them. I remember one of the family members smiling at me, like as soon as I opened the door, because I think it made them feel comfortable to see me. The, the agency that I work with now, the few times that I've had Black families, I was able to directly relate some of their issues to my own family and my own experience. And I feel like that helped me connect more. So I do feel like the answer would be to hire, one of the answers would be to hire more people, hire up to have a diverse group of supervisors or group of managers even to reflect the population and to have someone that we could identify with also when we're discussing our issues if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. It does. It does. In terms of hearing your voice, are you ever asked about how you're treated or how things go for you within your department? As far as any racialized do, experiences? No. Yes. Do managers ask you or people how it is for you to be African-American and predominantly working in an area that's not as kind, even historically, mm-hmm. to African-Americans? Right. And the sad thing is, no, I've never been asked ever how a visit went or if there was anything in relate, how a visit went in relation to me and the treatment of me. Um, Of course, they're always concerned about the clients, but never 
me in that aspect. And again, I think that has to do with two factors. I think one is because they don't have to think about it. And sometimes they forget is it's an issue. And then I also think that they're reluctant to even address the issue or acknowledge that it is an issue, which to me, I feel is it's, it's sad for the people who have to go through it because it's like our experiences aren't, aren't validated. And I don't think it's a conscious thing to slight us. But what I do feel like is I feel like in the workplace, people feel like the thing to do is to ignore race altogether, which Mm -hmm. doesn't really help anything, which isn't really a way to address the issue. I feel like the, the answer is not to just ignore it because we all have to deal with it. Race is a real thing. And when people say things like, oh, we don't want to see color. Why does everything have to be about race? Because everything is about race. That's what it is. I walk out of the, the house every single day as a black woman. And there's certain experiences that go along with that. Um, my close friends that are that are Latino, same thing. My friends that are Asian, same thing. They walk through, they go through the world in the skin they're in. And that comes with certain issues sometimes that other people don't necessarily have, especially white people that they don't have. And since the higher up we seem to go in a lot of social service agencies, the less diverse it is, especially in certain areas, they completely, they forget because they don't have to think about it. It's not their issue. But I think the goal should be not to just ignore it. I think the goal should be inclusion and a, and completely and try to address all groups that are present here and know that you're seeing what happens to you matters and create a space for us to actually address the fact that this happens to many of us here. And, and I think if we were talking to a, some engineers or biologists or chemists, then maybe this wouldn't be a part necessarily of the conversation, but we're talking about social workers and our decree is about do, serving social justice and advocating. And um, I'm not sure what, I do have some thoughts about called in to these conversations but like you said there's two factors they don't have a racial they they are not experienced racialized experience to the degree that it is causing them and they're reluctant to talk about it too right so i wanted to thank you so much for your time in chatting with me today well Thank you. I appreciate it. I, like I said, we don't really get to talk about these issues in the workplace as much as we'd like to. And I think as much as it is necessary, because sometimes you need to, the same way we try to get our clients to open up and talk about their issues. I feel like this is an issue that we should address and we should talk about it more. Absolutely. All right. Thank you. Thank you, Tanya. Bye. (laughs) Bye Bye-bye. Well, here are the takeaways from my conversation with Kotana. Boy, it was nice to have an opportunity to chat with her. You know, Kotana is very compassionate. And I hope that you were able to hear this in her voice. She loves the work that she does. And being a social worker has been good to her for the most part. But she has an experience. Social workers, particularly, 
those who are of color have a racialized experience. As Quatana noted, their experience, you know, these forms of microaggressions with clients within their organization. A microaggression is a comment or action either in a subtle or unconscious way is expressed or expresses a prejudiced attitude towards a person of color. I noted three main themes in our conversation. We don't take enough time to listen to the experiences of people of color in the social work profession. No one asks us about our experience, as this was the case for Katana. She had never been asked about her racialized experience. The thought may be, if we don't talk about it, we can ignore it, and it won't exist at all. Well, the social work profession needs to do a better job changing this. We need to talk about racialized experiences, institutional racism, microaggressions, and this idea of white fragility. White fragility is the defensiveness of someone who identifies as a white or Caucasian person when confronted about these racial inequalities or social injustices. The individual becomes defensive, wounded, and dismissive in their response when there's evidence of racism. I am glad Quatana brought this out into the open. The second idea that stuck with me was the misrepresentation of people of color. In this case, African-American people who are qualified are not being promoted as managers and administrators. This says something about the organization when you service a population that does not look like the population it serves. Kotana provided two examples of how families connected with her initially because she had a shared cultural experience. This is a challenge. The same challenge going on with law enforcement. This organization also needs a cultural representation, the higher up chiefs and brass employees to be a cultural representation of the population they serve. It doesn't take science. This builds trust between the organization and the community. The last idea that stuck with me was Quatana's experience and how this relates to trauma. She has to prepare going to work, taking a breath before she even gets out of the car. And her internalized, racialized comments that she receives from the community. This changes you as a person, changes how you feel about yourself, and is re-traumatizing over and over again. Quatana, thank you for your voice, the words you use to express your experience, and you still Keep going every day to work. Remember to take care of yourselves, be kind and compassionate to others, and work on your trauma. Don't let your trauma work you. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share it with others. Like below and subscribe to my channel. I will end by saying, the keys to happiness are following the path towards knowing oneself. Ancient Kemetic Proverbs.